First this morning, it is two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, a war that's never been far from the headlines since and that has killed an estimated hundreds of thousands of people. This grim milestone comes amid faltering international support and in the face of grinding gains made on the battlefield. It's also a week since the death of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and just weeks out from the Russian presidential election. My guest is Oleksandra Matvichuk, a Ukrainian human rights lawyer who heads the Centre for Civil Liberties. She's also the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. I asked her, what is it like for people to live in the midst of a war? I still lack a proper words to describe what does it mean to live during the large-scale war, because everything which we call normal life, a possibility to go to work, to meet with your friends with cafe, to hug your beloved ones, to have family dinner, was crushed in one moment. To live during the large-scale war means to live in total uncertainty, because you can't play not just your day, but your next several hours. You have no idea what will happen. To live during the large-scale war, it means to live in constant fear for your beloved ones, because even um, if your um, relatives or members of your family didn't join to Ukraine armed forces to defend the country, there is no safe place anymore where you can hide from Russian rocket. And you've been documenting some of the war crimes that have been taking place. Bearing in mind that, you know, we, we are a morning radio show. Can you describe some of what you've uncovered? Let me tell you the story of 10-year-old boy Ilya from Mariupol. Uh, the story was not documented by myself personally, but my colleague. Uh, when Russians tried to seize the city, they they didn't allow International Committee of Red Cross to evacuate civilians. And that is why Ilya and his mother, as like other people in Mariupol, had to hide in basement of their residential buildings. And they melted snow to have water and they made a fire to have some food. But when supplies run out, they they have to, to go out. And suddenly they appeared in the center of Russian shelling. His mother was injured in the head and the boy's legs was uh, severely damaged. Ilya's mother, with the last strength, took his boy to the friend's apartment and they have no medical assistance because prior to this, Russians destroyed maternity hospital and the entire medical infrastructure in the city. So they just laying in a couch and hugging each other. They laying like this for several hours. And this 10-year-old boy told to my colleague that his mother died and frozen in his arms. What do these sorts of horrors do to people? It's uh, millions of Ukrainians are suffering because um, Russians use war crimes as a message of our fear. Russia instrumentalized the pain and deliberately provide enormous suffering to civilians. It's a way how to Russia try to win this war, uh, like to provide so much pain that we have no energy to resist and, and they can easily occupy the country. So what is the motivation around committing war crimes and about committing crimes like sexualized violence, which have a high level of cruelty? Let me describe an example of sexual violence because it's a very 
a sensitive crime through concrete individuals. Russians try to target the whole community. How it works? The survivors of sexual violence uh, feel shame. Uh, their relatives, their neighbors, uh, their families uh, feel guilt because they can't stop it. The other members of community feel fear because they can be subjected to the same treatment. So this mixture of fear, shame and guilt decrease the social connection between members of community and as a result decrease the potential of local communities to counteract Russian occupation. What happens to Ukrainians that are captured by the Russian forces? Uh, we have uh, in our database um, more 4,000 uh, requests for help from relatives of civilian hostages. According to international humanitarian law, um, Russians can't arrest civilians, but they did in all uh, regions where they were presented. For example, um, we have cases when Russians illegally arrested civilians in Kiev region, and when they were withdrawn from region, they took these people to, with them. And uh, after two years, relatives can't release uh, these people. And I mentioned that we have in our database 4,000 cases, but it's just a tip of iceberg. Uh, the real number much, much higher. You mentioned the various ways that people are killed or indeed are tortured. There is also the tactic of siege that we saw, particularly in places like Mariupol. Is the Russian invasion, the way it is conducting itself, all about breaking the people of Ukraine? This war has genocidal character. Uh, Putin, in his recent interview, openly said and repeat uh, once again his genocidal claim that there is no Ukrainian nation, that we are the same people as Russians. And all these years we have been documenting how these words transferred into horrible practice. When Russian troops illegally exterminated the active local people, like mayors, priests, artists, children writers, civil society leaders in, in communities, how they ban Ukrainian language and culture, uh, how they destroy Ukrainian cultural heritage, uh, how they abducted Ukrainian children and forcibly deported them to Russia in order to bring them up as Russians. Um, so it's very clear for us that we have no other choice. Uh, if we stop fighting, they will be no more us. How do you deal with this level of horror? It's very difficult, uh, frankly speaking. Even myself, with all my knowledge and field experience, was unprepared for such level of atrocities. We document not just violations of Geneva and Hague conventions. We document human pain, and it's very uh, difficult from professional and from personal point of view. But also, uh, what keeps us going, it's example of uh, a lot of people in the country, like um, millions of ordinary people started to do extraordinary things. And two years ago, when the large-scale invasion started, not just Putin, but also our international partners was confident that Ukraine can't resist because Russia is so enormous opposing power. But very quickly, it became obvious that ordinary people who are fighting for their freedom and their dignity are stronger than even the second army in the world. 
And while you see this example of ordinary people who doing extraordinary things in their place, places, it's it's a real inspiration. What is the personal toll that the war has taken on you? Um, frankly speaking, I think that I can answer this question later when the war will end. Now I'm afraid uh, to um, to ask myself a lot of questions and to be um, more like uh, precisely pay attention to my emotion. Um, because we have we have to run. This is a marathon. It's a very long marathon, but we have to run with a very high speed. It's very difficult, and you can't afford yourself to have a pause and to reflect about um, yourself, your emotion, etc., etc. Would you have children in Ukraine? I will. I for ten last years work with torture cases, and that is why. I postpone uh, this um like for for future uh, times but frankly speaking when large scale invasion started I understood that probably I will have no future so now I will de- I decided that um <laughs> they will be not better moment and I'm, I'm seriously thinking about to have a children So what does peace look like in Ukraine? Is it at any price? And what is that price? I think that people who live uh, in peaceful countries, they they take peace for granted. They don't understand that you have to fight for peace. Because um, in our example, people in Ukraine want peace much more than anyone else. But peace doesn't come when country which was invaded stop fighting. That's not peace. That's occupation. And Occupation is horrible. Occupation is just another form of the war. Um, it's not just changing one state flag to another. Occupation means torture, sexual violence, enforced disappearances, denial of your identity, forcible adoption of your own children, filtration camps and mass graves. So peace being established at the expense of territory and land being given to Russia, for you that wouldn't be peace at all? But it will not be peace even for Russia, because uh, can, we can look in the near past. Uh, this war started not in February 2022, but in February 2014, when Russia occupied Crimea and part of Lugansk and Donetsk region. And for all this eight years before large-scale invasion, Ukraine has no chance to return these territories. And we was in so-called uh, peace negotiation and, conduct, and uh, conducted a so-called Minsk peace agreement with Russia. And how Russia used this time? Russia transferred Crimean Peninsula, the former resort, into a powerful military base. Russia prepared their economy to bypass the sanctions, Russia retreat their groups, prepare the plan of invasion and start light-scale war. So it's wishful thinking that Putin will stop. Putin openly declared that he wants to restore Russian empire. And the, the crucial thing is that if you not be able to stop Putin in Ukraine, he will go further. I'd like to talk to you about that more in just a moment. But to ask you now, what does victory look like 
for Ukraine? And is that even achievable anymore? We have a very ambitious definition of victory. Victory for people in Ukraine means not just to retreat Russian troops out from the country and to restore international order, our sovereignty, and release people who live in Crimea, Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions, which is temporarily occupied by Russians. But victory for Ukraine means also to succeed in democratic transition of our country, uh, to build the society where the rights of everybody are protected. Because this war started exactly in that point when we got this chance to build such a country. Ten years ago, uh, when authoritarian regime in Ukraine collapsed due to revolutionary dignity. And in order to stop us on this way, Putin started this uh, war of aggression. Because Putin is not afraid of NATO. Putin is afraid of the idea of freedom. Winning isn't the same as not losing. Um, Is time and inclination from Ukraine's allies running out? When large-scale invasion started, the international community said, let's help Ukraine not to fail. And Ukraine obtained the first weapons to be able to defend ourselves and first real sanctions against Russia were introduced into force. And we are extremely grateful because it helped us to survive. But this is also an explanation why Ukraine was waiting for a first modern tank for more than one year, why we still have a zero modern plane and had to start it counteroffensive without any possibility to secure Ukrainian sky against Russian rockets, Russian planes and Russian bombs. Because there is a huge differences between let's help Ukraine not to fail and let's help Ukraine to win. And we can practically measure these differences in types of weapons, in speed of sanctions, in gravity of decisions. And the problem is that we have no time. The time for us converted in numerous deaths, in numerous deaths in battlefield, in numerous deaths in occupied territories, in numerous deaths in deep rear. And so what do you want to see from the international community? More weapons, more resources? I want to see the support of Ukraine in this ambitious goal uh, to achieve Ukrainian victory. Because in opposite, I see how Russia is for, for me, uh, creating the whole authoritarian bloc. Iran provided Russia with drones, uh, Syria voted for Russia in UN General Assembly, China helped Russia to bypass the sanctions and to import Western technologies critical to warfare and uh, North Korea sent to Russia more than 1 million artillery shells. If authoritarian regimes support each other, democracies have to help each other even stronger because we're fighting for freedom, and freedom is very unique uh, phenomena. Uh, we live in a very interconnected world. Only spread of freedom make our world safer. This conflict in Ukraine would appear to be illustrating in real time, the failure of the international community. Would you agree? I don't know how historians of the future will call this period, but we live in very turbulent times. The end system of peace and security is collapsing before our eyes. It's become obvious that they can't protect people against authoritarianism in the wars. And before it was obvious for people in Myanmar, in Syria, in Nicaragua, in Sudan, in Afghanistan, in China, 
now it became obvious for people in the whole world uh, the work of security council is paralyzed so if we want to prevent wars in the future we have to punish states and their leaders who start such wars in present and this is a common logic and the problem is that in the whole history of humankind we have only one such a precedent it was nuremberg trials where nazi was criminals were tried but only after nazi regime had collapsed and i always emphasize that we live in new century we cannot wait justice must be independent on when and how this war will end we have to create a special tribunal on aggression and hold Putin, Lukashenko, and top political leadership and high military command of Russian state accountable. You're listening to RNZ National. It's Saturday morning with Susie Ferguson. And my guest is Oleksandra Matvichuk, Ukrainian human rights lawyer and the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Do you think that the world will see Vladimir Putin in the dock being tried? I believe that if Vladimir Putin will be alive, I will see him in The Hague. And I visualize this moment very brightly. Um, Because uh, based on the history, we know that authoritarian regime collapsed and their leaders who see themselves untouchable appeared under the court. Um, Like Milosevic, Serbia uh, didn't want to transfer Milosevic to The Hague, but Serbia did. What would it take? for that to happen? We need a bravery and political, uh, historical responsibility from international community. I mean, particularly political leaders of different countries, Um, because um, it's not conflict in Ukraine. It's not Ukrainian war. It's even bigger than Russian war against Ukraine, because this is not just a war between two states. This is a war between two systems, authoritarianism, and democracy. And with this war, Russia attempts to convince the entire world that democracy, rule of law, and human rights are fake values. That country with a strong military potential and nuclear weapon can break international order, can dictate its rules to entire international community, and even forcibly change the internationally recognized borders. And if Russia succeeds and enjoys impunity once again, it will encourage other authoritarian leaders in the world to do the same. Does Vladimir Putin feel that he has time on his side, though? Is he waiting for this year of elections, not only in Russia in a few weeks' time, but also in the United States? Because that, if Donald Trump is re-elected, could mean something quite different. Uh, for sure, uh, he um, he awaited for scenario and he sent uh, this uh, signal to the West that uh, Russia is ready for um, peaceful negotiation only with one goal. He wants to decrease the level of support uh, to Ukraine uh, among um, different countries and use this chance and occupy the country. Uh, but uh, I'm looking in future with optimism. I'm optimist in my nature because I spent 20 years in human rights protection. And if I will be a pessimist, it will be difficult for me to stay in in this role for so long. You mentioned that this is bigger than just about Ukraine and Russia. Um, and that if Vladimir Putin does get away with it, there will be more to come. What do you think the consequences would be? 
according to the, hum the Freedom House report, uh, the 80% of people in the world live in non-free or partially free societies, which means that people who, who have a privilege to say what they think, uh, to decide whom they want to love, uh, to um, to be independent in their religious choice, a minority, only 20% of people in the whole globe <laughs> have uh, such uh, privilege. Um, and this means that the, the freedom is under threat in the whole world. And the problem is not just in that fact that in authoritarian countries, the size of uh, freedom is shrinking to the size of the prison cell. The problem is that even in well-developed democracies, the current generation start uh, openly questioned the universal principle of declaration of human rights. And there is a clear reason for this, because uh, current generations in these well-developed democracies, they inherited this system from their parents. They have never fought for freedom or for democracy. Uh, they start to take freedom for granted and see freedom like a possibility to make a choice between cheeses in supermarket. And they forget that freedom is very fragile. Uh, you can't attain freedom and democracy once and forever. We every day make our choice. So people like me who live in countries like New Zealand... We don't know how lucky we are. I would never wish any nation to go through our experience. So I hope that we will learn from the mistakes of the past and can can prevent the worst things happened. I will quote my colleague, Russian human rights defenders, who is the head of international memorial, who obtained together with us the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022. He told that if Western societies will not take now decisive action because they're afraid today to go beyond from the zone of comfort, it means that these Western societies will be awaiting for catastrophe tomorrow. There is a certain irony in speaking with you, you know, in speaking with a Nobel Peace Prize laureate who is urging for the war to continue. I'm not urging for war to continue. I am urging for Ukrainian people to survive. Because if Ukraine stop fighting, Russia will occupy Ukraine and realize the genocidal claim. And this means uh, that that moment, even severe skeptics will have no doubt that Russia committed genocide against Ukraine. But for us, as for people who live in this country, it will be too late. Let me remind you that in 2022, UN Court of Justice uh, obliged Russia to withdraw troops from Ukraine, and Russia ignore even the decision of UN Court of Justice. If it happens, and Ukraine will stop fighting, and I and other people will be killed, please tell me who will come and protect us. If we could talk about the death of Alexei Navalny, uh, which many in the world community are pointing the finger at the Kremlin and at Vladimir Putin being behind his death, what is your assessment of the timing just a few weeks out from the Russian presidential election? It's not first political death in Russia. Uh, in 2015, in February, the opposition, another Russian opposition leader, Boris Nemtsov, was killed 
um, someone shoot him in his back with a six bullet. And Boris Nemtsov was one of uh, brave uh, Russian uh, leader who tried to stop this war. Um, I think that uh, Putin um, sent a clear signal to international community um, because before um, he was told that if Navalny will die in prison, it will be a red line. And after this, international community will take um, um, devastating um, uh, like uh, action which lead to devastating consequences. And Putin laughing uh, from international community, like show what 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 you, what you can do with me. Yes, I think it was Joe Biden who said that. It doesn't seem in the last week to have um, prompted that from the international community. And that is why I'm waiting for the next bad development, because the logic of authoritarian leaders is always the same. They respect only strengths. And when they see a weakness, they will attack and go further. Why do you think Alexei Navalny returned to Russia after that attempted Novichok poisoning? Because he wanted to be a Russian political leader, and uh, it's very difficult to be a political leader of the country uh, while you are in exile. Was it courage? Because he must have known what his likely outcome was going to be. Sure, he is an extremely courageous person. The Russian election takes place on the 15th to the 17th of March. What do you anticipate that meaning for peace in Ukraine, but also peace in the region? It depends on the results. Uh, I don't I don't mean the result of this imitation process, which uh, we uh, called election in Russia, because there is no doubt that Putin will win. I mean the result uh, as a reaction of international community to this election. Whether or not political leaders in different countries find a bravery and historical responsibility to say that this is not election because it's not in line with the Copenhagen principle and what election is about. And that is why they don't recognize Putin as a legitimate president of Russia. And when Vladimir Putin likely does win the presidential election, will the world be surprised? Will they treat him any differently? We'll see in the near future. You mentioned that Ukraine is not the end point here. What do you see as Russia's next target if it is allowed to continue as it has been? I'm not a military expert, and that's why it's very difficult for me to predict uh, who can be a next target, what will be more suitable for Russia to uh, to attack. Uh, but I can easily predict that it will happen because Russia is empire. Empire has a center, but has no borders. If empire has energy, empire is always expanded. This is the nature of empire. If the UN and the old world order has failed by letting this happen, what needs to change? 
uh, we have to fulfill the short-term strategy and long-term strategy. I still believe that we can achieve our short-term strategy goals. I mean, help Ukraine to win. Because only success of Ukraine provide a chance, not guarantee, but chance for democratic future of Russia itself. And that is why my Russian human rights colleagues, when I ask them how I can help them, because they face also with a lot of challenges in the country. Some of them have to leave their homes. Uh, some of them are under criminal prosecutions. Their human rights organization is in Russia is uh, all um, closed. They always answered, if you want to help us, please be successful. In long-term strategy, we have to start a cardinal reform of UN system of peace and security because it's not working. Because I am a human rights lawyer, have no legal instrument how to stop the horrible atrocities which we documented. And this is not normal. And while I describe this uh, situation that the law doesn't work, I do believe that it's temporarily that when we restore international order, we will able to do something with this. And we have to jointly build a new system uh, of peace and security, which can effectively protect people and regardless in what country they live, regardless whether or not they live in country with a strong military potential or their country is member of some powerful military bloc. And this is not easy task, uh, but this is definitely something which has to, to be done. Does the UN need to reform, perhaps in the first instance, by removing the right of veto at the Security Council? I think that the first step has to be ex exclude Russia from Security Council uh, for the violation of UN Chatter. Um, because uh, Security Council is a body uh, which was created to prevent aggressive wars. And how how the country which started aggressive wars can be a member, it's, it's uh, against the common sense. Uh, but the problem with the UN system is much more deeper because uh, this system was created in past century by victorious states in the after the Second World War, and uh, these states um, l l provided themselves irrational uh, privileges like veto power, and uh, the architecture of the system is not appropriate to the current need. It means that. We need cardinal reform, not just some cosmetic changes. You still seem to have hope for the system, which a lot of people perhaps are surprised at after the horrors of the last two years. Because I know that all our efforts have sense. I was uh, brought up by Soviet dissidents. When I was a child in a school, I got acquaintance with uh, Soviet dissidents um famous Ukrainian philosopher, writer, and former political leader, uh, political prisoners of Soviet Hulag, Yevhen Sverstuk, and he ingrained me in the dissident circle. And um, I had the privilege to speak and to, uh, to see fantastic people who stood up their voice against the whole totalitarian Soviet machine. Uh, they, they were brave uh, to use uh, the only instrument which they have, they have only their own words and their own position. And they 
showed very brightly that it's not so little. And from the short-term perspective, we can say that dissident movement uh, failed in Soviet Union because in 16, um, the, the um, dissidents uh, were arrested and um, put in Soviet gulag. Uh, part of them were killed. Part of them were forcibly um, subjected uh, to treatment in psychological hospitals. Their uh, careers were ruined. Their families were separated. But from the long-term perspective, we know that they are winners because we now in Ukraine have a chance to fight for independent country uh, because they stood up their voice in 16 and in 19 we re restore our independence. So I know that uh, each efforts have a huge meaning uh, and result sooner or later, even unexpectedly, will be achieved. The war in Ukraine was top of the news headlines for a long time. But in recent weeks and months, it has dropped down the news running order and has been replaced by the war in Gaza, often. What do you think peace looks like there? It's one example that we have the problem with international system of peace and security. And um, it's unfortunately easy to predict that uh, such wars will, or frozen conflict will appear more and more um, often in different parts of the globe. Like in recent years, look uh, what's happened with Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, now uh, we hear this claim of uh, of Venezuela authorities that they want captured uh, the part of uh, independent country which uh, is their neighbors. Uh, so we 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 like passengers in a plane. We're in a zone of turbulence, and that this because this international system is not working properly. And in such time of crisis, the role of personal leadership become more and more important. And um, that is why I apply to people in the different countries. I know that uh, politicians always have a temptation not to solve the global problems in like in illusion that this problem will vanish. But the truth is that problem will not vanish. They become more and more serious. And I know that ordinary people have a much greater impact that they can even imagine that mass mobilization of ordinary people in different countries of the world can change the history for better. And that is Oleksandra Matvichuk, a Ukrainian human rights lawyer who heads the Centre for Civil Liberties and also the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Speaking to her there about the second anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine, which is today